Hey, and welcome to On The Road. I'm your host, Rick Courier. This is the podcast where you get to join me for coffee and cocktails with tech partner marketers. Together, we learn from their experience and have a little fun. Today's episode, I traveled to San Francisco to meet with Carlos Roman, VP of Global Partner Marketing at Okta. It was great to hear Carlos's story on education, entrepreneurship, and his steady upward career progression in partner marketing. Carlos gave some great advice that can be applied directly to the success of partner marketing programs, but also the creation and formation of teams, the success of careers, and more. Carlos definitely brought the energy, and I learned a lot from him. I hope you do too. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Carlos. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, when did you get in town? Uh, I got in Sunday night. Sunday nice. night. Nice. Yeah. I, it's funny, I grew up here, but I, I forgot about the Indian summer, and it's, it's warm out. <laughs> yeah, actually, October is the best time to be in San Francisco. Yeah, are you from the Bay Area? I, I lived up here for a while before okay. my wife and I moved out to Arizona. Where are you from originally? Always in the Southwest, so New Mexico is where I grew up. Okay. Then migrated to California, now Arizona. Our okay. rule is that we don't want to live anywhere where there's snow. Yeah. <laughs> we can we can go visit snow. Yeah. I don't want to have to shovel snow. So New Mexico we, gets some snow though, right? The northern part. Yeah. Okay. I was kind of from the southern part. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I I live in the Denver area, and we went oh, down yeah. to Santa Fe, and yeah, that's a great area. It was cold. <laughs> when it I, is. I was there for around Thanksgiving, and it was it was cold. It's the southern part of the Rockies too. So yeah. it's still elevation. I think seven thousand yeah. feet elevation. But you you were more southern, so southern, it was, yeah, okay. warm weather guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's beautiful out right now. Love it. it. It's Fleet Week, so we'll see if the Blue Angels buzz us. Yeah, right. It'll be interesting on the podcast. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be and, great. And uh, so we're drinking coffee today. Um, yep. I actually love Blue Bottle because um, they do a New Orleans style iced coffee. Okay. And uh, I used to live in New Orleans, and they do chicory, which I can't find. I'm sure other places do it, but. Uh, they do it here, and we don't get it in Colorado. So. so New Orleans, that's a pretty crazy place it can be around mm-hmm. Mardi Gras time. Yep. That's probably for a different podcast, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's uh, on the road after dark. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. That must have been, uh, you probably have some stories there for a different time. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's funny. I went to uh, business school there, undergrad, in, mm-hmm. in New Orleans, and I always tell people I learned more working in a bar in undergrad right? than I did at, at the school. So it's like, you know, high stress, customer service, yeah. um, you know, drunk people is, are hard <laughs> right. to deal with. So, right. you know, we get angry clients. That's nothing these days. I think there is something to be said for just the kind of the MBA, the, the school of hard knocks and yeah. just kind of getting out there. There's no substitute for that type of experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of MBA, uh, you went to Stanford. I did. Electrical engineering. Yes, so not an MBA. Okay. But, but <laughs> masters, so, I mean, masters. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell me more about that. Like, I, I'd love to know your background in terms of why electrical engineering, and then how did you get into partner marketing? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, so, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll rewind yeah. all the way back. So I'm going to start, start back a little bit further. I'm going to start with my dad. Okay. So my dad uh, was born and grew up in, in Bolivia, in okay. South America. And so he was, uh, is a very poor country, and he was able to go to medical school in Bolivia. Hmm. And so medical school in Bolivia is free, and you just, everyone enters in, and all you have to do is pay back the government a couple years, and then you're basically, you've got a free degree. So he came came over to the United States as a doctor, 
Wow. And he knew that his way out of Bolivia was through education. Huh. So that was kind of one of the things that he always was instilling in us. Yeah. Was that, okay, whatever you do, you got to go to school. And, you know, so we were fortunate to be able to just sort of be on the path with just knowing that education was a priority. And so, you know, growing up, I uh, grew up in New Mexico. Yeah. And went to undergrad, I went to New Mexico State where I did electrical engineering. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was one of the things where it's like, okay, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but engineering um, was kind of a good foundation for just basically anything you want to launch from. Yeah, yeah. And um, then my dad was also saying, hey, well, you know, I'm a doctor. Why don't we need another doctor? I think he just wanted someone to take care of him when he got older. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, why don't you go to medical school and, and um, you know, be a doctor? And so I stayed an extra year undergrad and... Um, I applied to medical school. I was accepted medical school. Okay. And it was like one of those things where I was just like something in the back of my mind said, you know, I don't know if it's for me. I yeah. kind of like it, but I want to go to engineering. So, you know, there was, I had worked for a, um, a Stanford professor at the time, it, uh, undergrad. And she said, oh, you know, you got to call so-and-so over at Stanford and do your, uh, continue doing your electrical engineering degree. Huh. And so, um, it so was, you had one side pushing you one way and your dad pushing you the other yeah, way. Right. Yeah. But it was always just about education, knowing yeah. that engineering is just going to be a foundation for whatever, whatever's next. Yeah. Um, and then the funny story is, so when I applied to Stanford, it was, um, I, um, I called up, you know, I called the, the person and it sort of networked and tried to made the way to the right contact. And so I finally got hold of the right person at Stanford. Yeah. And this is, you know, I'm just some undergrad kid, and I, I called up and I said, well, uh, can you tell me a little bit about, like, sell me on Stanford, essentially. <laughs> and it was just, you know, not knowing that they're one on the of the spot, best. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, you pretty much, uh, you missed the deadline. You haven't taken your GREs, uh, you know. So what you need to do is you need to take the GREs, you need to get a certain threshold score, and yeah. then send it to me. So it was all she wrote from there. But um, it was off, off to engineering. Wow. Yeah, and then so that all worked out, and then you just got into Stanford. Yeah, it was you just like so easy. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it was it was really you know I don't know if I could get in now just because the application process yeah. was um, you know was so hard, but it was one of those situations where I really think like the the context. So you have to you have to know you have to be able to to do really good work, mm-hmm. but then you have to work your relationships. So I had that connection. I called around, you know, I had to sort of find out what the other ways are. And I think that half the battle in life is just basically showing up and really hustling. So getting that hustle to get in, because otherwise if I was just sort of one of the the standard applications, I don't know if I would have gotten in. Yeah, at that. yeah, it's so funny you say that, like actually going back to the bar example, um, it, working in the bar is really where I learned the hustle. Yeah. You know, I, I remember, you know, I started in the kitchen at 19, you know, flipping right. burgers, and you know, I would come in on my off days and practice pouring water, getting the shot count right. right. You Not know, too and, much. Yeah, Not too right. Much. And then I, you know, I'd wipe bottles and clean during happy hours, and you know, eventually I got in the bar back, and then you know, and then I really hustled and helped the bartenders, and yeah. but I, I tried to make connections, I tried to build relationships, and you know, that's had impacts on my entire career in life. That, that hasn't changed. And I think that's one of the key too, is just making sure that you have those relationships because at the end of the day, you know, people are working with people and yeah. that's gonna determine your success or not. Yeah, yeah. So after Stanford, you, f- 
Did you go straight into starting companies, or what did that transition look like? Yeah, so so I did. I entered in to do my master's in electrical engineering at Stanford. So you can't spell geek without a double e. Right? <laughs> <laughs> didn't didn't we need a, a drum here? Um, so we so after that there was a bunch of of classes, and one of the things at Stanford was just fantastic. Was they had so many opportunities to to connect with others. Mm-hmm. So there was an entrepreneurial class. Um, taught by Tom Byers, and he was just out pulling together a team. So we had an MBA student, we had a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, myself, and we sort of formed, we pulled together a business plan. Hmm. And at the end of the, the class, we just decided, well, let's just go off and, and kind of start this. So at night, we were sort of starting this company, yeah. and by day, I went to go work as an engineer at HP, um, wow. Designing circuits for printer chips, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that lasted like six months. Yeah. And then I decided, you know, I really like to talk to people. I want to go pursue this my own company, and and then we were fortunate to get a little bit of funding. Wow. So we got some funding, and then you know, we're just like these twenty-something kids trying to figure out like what to do next as as we start this company. Wow, so it was, it was a, a good learning experience. That I love it. It's I mean, you have the you know the the immigrant. You know, success story with your dad. Yeah. You have this starter, you know, foundry dream. You're living it. So, how did you how did you pivot from there into partner marketing? Yeah. So, you know, I think I think what my whole career has really been around and with partners. Mm-hmm. So, at every company and every stage, I've always had a partner. And even when we had, uh, you know, my own company. We were having partners who were reselling our product, right? And then um, we went to, or I say we, but I went over to um, the Disty side, like an Insight, and now it's Tech Data, but it was Avnet at the time. So okay. these are large companies that went to scale. Mm-hmm. So you kind of learn, uh, you know, what good looks like and how you should scale, and then coming back around into um, like the box and Crossrike and, and now Okta. But so every every phase has always been with a partner. And what I've noticed is I think the the partner marketing piece kind of came out where I think I was frustrated at one point where I just said, oh, you know, I don't like what the marketing team is doing. Hmm. I think I could do better. <laughs> and I just kind of went off and it was a little bit contagious, yeah. and one thing led to another, and I started becoming a marketer. <laughs> and now I look back, and I, you know, I, I, it's funny because everybody I talk to, everyone's a marketer. Everyone has ideas, and yeah. we got to do this and that. And um, it's just funny to be able to see now the shoes on the other side, and they're like, we can do this better than you. That's you know, it's really interesting too because, you know, we at Foundry we work with a lot of different companies and a lot of different marketing teams. You have an engineering background, and you know, based on your career, I'd say you've been a pretty successful marketer. We see a lot of engineering-forward companies that are, frankly, terrible at marketing. Right? Oh, yeah, it's, it's like yeah. the different part of the brain, and, and it's a challenge. It's like, here are my product features. You should buy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. That's right. We've built the best mousetrap. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that is true. So that's, that is another area where um, I totally see that, too, with engineering companies. Yeah. Engineering companies will say... Focus in on the product, and it will sell itself. Yeah, and it just doesn't yeah. because I think everyone here we're all distracted. We have things going on, and we need to be able to elevate those messages above the noise. And I think yeah. that's where the marketing comes in. And 
It's not just with products too. I think it's also in our careers too, because a lot of times when people are looking, how do I get promoted? It's like, well, I'm gonna do a really good job and people will be able to read my mind and be able to know that I contributed. Yeah. And half the battle is doing a really good job, but the other half is positioning yourself and just making sure that you're marketing internally up and down the food chain. Yeah. And that's something that is gonna determine success or not. And yeah. No, and, I, and it's a good point on a personal level, but I, I, I keep hearing the challenge come up on the partner marketing side that, you know, we're delivering results, we're showing ROI, but I'm just constantly having to prove the value internally. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, yep. especially with the corporate side and the field marketing side, just not, not seeing the value that the partner side's driving. And I think, you know, on the partner side, we have to be those, you know, evangelists to get that message 100%. out there. 100%. And one of the things I know, like you and I have been in this partner marketing space for, for a while now, early days. And as I say, you know, I was in partner marketing before it was a thing. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's a big thing now. Yeah, now, now it is. Yeah. But I think the industry has evolved and sort of the acknowledgement of partner marketing as a true career path has evolved. Whereas when I started, it was like, no, you know, you, you got to go off, got a skunk works project here. You got to take care of some of these partners and do something. Yeah. And I think some of the challenges, there's, well, I know there's lots of challenges why that happens still. Um, a lot of it is that, you know, partner marketing is kind of funny because you have to straddle the fence. You're, you have to support marketing, like the core marketing, mm -hmm. and you have to support core BD and alliances and partner teams. So, you know, your, your, your key stakeholders who are determining your success and career path are only see part of what you're doing. Yeah. And so you're supporting, you know, this side, but then this side doesn't see it. So you have to be able to work collaboratively across all both aisles and be able to push an agenda forward to deliver results, but then also be able to measure it. And I think that's where people get hung up because you have a, another moving part. Mm -hmm. So you have a partner component, which is outside your CRM system. And now you ha how do you measure success? And I think that's where people don't make that last connection. Yeah. So then it's just like, well, you know, what have you been doing for last quarter? Yeah, let me, I wanna dive into that too because I hear the measurement thing pop up consistently. Yeah. And, and you know, you're fresh on to Okta, you're at CrowdStrike, you're at Box. You know, there's, there's technologies out there to help measure, but not so much on the partner side, especially when you lose right. access to the data with the partners. Like, are, are you seeing anything work when it comes to, to measuring success? You know, as, as much as the, it's evolved into a thing, partner marketing, it's still, a lot of it is still duct tape and, yeah. and bubble gum on yeah. that too. I think there's systems that are that are better now, um, but I think it just you know you have to you have to set expectations internally with w what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, you know I kind of look at what, the the structure of uh, a partner marketing plan of what to expect is really kind of three pillars. So pillar number one is demand gen. So that's pipeline. So that's sort of, that can be measured because that's traditional marketing. We invest some dollars with partners, we do an activity, we get 100 people there, we build pipeline, that's gonna flow through the system. So that demand gen piece. And then pillar number two is really around the brand and the awareness. Mm -hmm. How can we leverage partners to be able to amplify uh, the success and take our message further? And so I think that that's a huge opportunity to be able to look at large companies like in AWS, and if you partner with AWS, you wanna ride their coattails, you wanna be able to draft off of them. Yeah. Um, and then the pillar number three is that enablement, which is 
teaching someone how to fish versus giving them a fish. So I know we talk a lot about that, but it's just like I, if I'm fishing, I'm going to cast one line and I'm going to sit all day and I may ca catch X number of fish. Yeah. Or what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the time to, to help 10 people put lines in there and then we're going to add up everything. Now, up front, it takes a little bit more time, but eventually, you know, the long-term impact is, um, it, it will sort of yield its, the results. But how you measure that yeah. is key because you have to look at measurements for each of these three pillars. So pillar number one with demand is easy because you can show immediate pipeline. The third pillar with enablement is you can measure it at the partner level. So you say partner XYZ has had so many deal registrations, we're investing $100, and then over um, three quarters, the deal regs have gone up and the overall booking. So you can kind of measure it from that perspective. Hmm. And, you know, so you have kind of a tactical um, investment with demand gen, but then you also have the enablement measurements. Um, and then the other thing from a enablement standpoint is leading indicators, so activities, um, like how many partners are coming to get trained, because uh, those are leading. If you get 10 people trained, then mm -hmm. one person's going to book a deal and you're going to have X amount. So those activities, how many people are opening your newsletters, reading your, you know, attending sales kickoff. So kind of you have leading indicators, you have aggregate amounts. So there's a, a little bit of a complex, I don't want to say you need a PhD yeah. to figure that out, but you know, there's a lot of moving parts in terms of getting the right scorecard dialed in. And how are you measuring brand on the, on the awareness side? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a piece I was hoping you wouldn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we think we're all trying to figure it out right. in the industry, right? Yeah, like, that one, yeah. you know, I've, I haven't figured out a good one. Yeah. I know that there's some, there are some services you can pay for to be able to get impressions, you know, social media views, mm -hmm. all that. But I kind of have to chalk that up just to the goodness that you have to do. And, and um, you know, when we're doing a press release or when we're doing a, a thought leadership, yeah. you know, it's, that one's really tough to measure. But I think the good news is the organization really will see the visual impact saying, wow, we got, you know, a thousand people registered for this event. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. So I imagine, you know, going back to something you said, just in terms yeah. of setting expectations internally, right? Yep. And I think that's uh, yeah. really tied with helping the rest of the organization see the value in what it is you're doing. So when you're coming into a place and, you know, I know you're new at Okta, but coming to a place where there's like CrowdStrike where you last were, is it is it kind of documenting this approach, letting everybody know, like, these are the things we're going to do. These are things we're going to measure, and then you keep reporting on that over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I do think I haven't really thought about this, but in terms of a of the key priorities, um, and this is near and dear because I'm kind of going through this now with Okta. Um, I think I think one of the key things for success is getting alignment, mm -hmm. which means what are you know everyone's rowing really hard, mm -hmm. but everyone's rowing and the boat's spinning. And so what are our focus partners? Um, you know, where are we prioritizing? And so I think getting that alignment from the marketing side, the alliance side, and the sales side is key. That's job number one. So number one, getting alignment there. Um, that can be a hard job, because oh, getting it, it, alignment absolutely. with sales and marketing it, when you're on the partner side, it, that can be a lifelong struggle <laughs> in some companies, right? Like, it, it is because so-and-so, this rep's got a, is, has a buddy out in you know, this part of the country, and yeah. they're doing a whole bunch of stuff, but that partner may not be strategic. Right. And so you have things coming in sideways, and you end up with these random acts of marketing, <laughs> which is just like reactive, uh, you know, this, 
the squeaky wheel syndrome. Yep, yep. And I think the, the best thing that someone could do is just come in and just say, okay, let's stop the, stop the madness. Yeah. And let's just agree which partners, let's put partners into kind of three tiers. Tier number one, we're going to be proactive annual marketing plans. Mm-hmm. Tier number two is opportunistic. We won't do annual plans, but you know, we can do one-offs. So if someone wants to do a webinar here and they're strategic. And then third is self, self-service. Yeah. Now, to have that self-service tier, you have to be able to have the programs to enable them. Because if you don't have self-service, then you can call it self-service, but right. it's just a no. It's just a go pound sand. Yeah, let me ask on the self-service side. I know it's it's been a struggle for a lot of companies to get partners to engage. Come in, mm-hmm. select programs, utilize their MDF. Has this economy, has it changed that? Or are partners more likely to utilize MDF at these, as they've seen their own budgets deteriorate? Is self-service still a challenge? Like, what have you seen over the past year? Yeah, I, I, I think just, you know, depending on the partner, because we haven't even talked about partner types, because yeah. we do, do need different marketing motions for different partner types. Um, but I think depending on the partner type, because we, we have different marketing plans for different partner types. So depending on the partner type, I think that... Um, there is there is a need to be able to try and do more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my experience has been is depending on the maturity of the partner organization. Sometimes the partners may not be able to invest in marketing automation platforms and and the the right people. And so yeah. sometimes what it devolves into is just uh, let's go have a happy hour, you know, event. So yep. let's let's kind of throw a party. Yeah. And I don't really count that as a marketing because we're not sharing a corporate message, we're not capturing leads, we're not doing the follow-up. Yeah. So I think what the default with partners is when the economic downturn comes around and pipeline's low, you know, they sort of default to what they know, which is, okay, let's go ha- host a happy hour event. Right. And we need, we need funding to be able to do that. And I think that's where, you know, as partner marketers, we could really help by putting together digital campaigns, mm-hmm. top of the funnel, you can give them structure to be able to, so it's not just a party, yeah. it's more of a true um, opportunity there. Where And part of that's funding, but also I think more importantly, part of that's that, that structure and the guidance. Yeah. Um, so providing that framework out so that partners can plug in um, is key. And it seems it's more scalable too, right? It is, it is, because we all have to do more with less given yeah. the economic conditions. Yeah, interesting, interesting. So, so you were at, at CrowdStrike for, yep. for three years. Any unique challenges or success stories there that, that might be helpful to people listening? Yeah, um, I really, I, I recently moved over to, to Okta and I really enjoyed my, my time at CrowdStrike. Um, it was very, a very interesting start. Um, so I started March of 2020, okay. which is right as the world <laughs> shut down. Yeah, great, so I, great time to onboard, right? <laughs> I went to RSA. Did you even and, get a computer? I mean, how did that work? Like, <laughs> it, well, it, yeah, so I, I didn't meet a soul for like, I think it was like 20 months. Wow. Yeah, oh, so man. everything was 100% virtual and Zoom. So yeah. I had to meet everyone, meet the team, build relationships. Yeah. And we talked about earlier building relationships, do annual planning, wow. you know, have some of those yeah. hard conversations all on Zoom. So it was, uh, it, was, it was a social experiment that I never want to do again. Um, but, so, but CrowdStrike was a very, uh, you know, it was a very unique uh, experience because when I started, 
I think the company was at 800 million mm-hmm. um, in revenue and 2,000 employees. And fast forward three years later, now uh, what 7,500 employees, yeah. almost three billion. Wow! In re- so that talk about a rocket ship. Thanks to your work on the partner side. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well I, I think one of the things too is that you know looking back, the unique thing at CrowdStrike was when I started. We, I mean, we had a very basic foundation of a, a partner marketing team, mm-hmm. but over the course of those three years. I was able to help build those and hire in some of the best talent. So one of the luxuries that I had there was I got to actually bring in all of my people versus mm. sometimes you inherit a team. Yeah. And we just ended up with a really solid team. And just we just did some amazing things. I think that it was just everything from revamping the, the partner newsletters and the com- communications to um, up-leveling our partner summit and our partner advisory boards to running these amazing demand gen activities, building some some great partnerships, and really dialing it in how do we go to market with different partner types. Okay. So it was um, a lot of work. I mean, CrowdStrike runs super fast. Uh, same thing with Okta. Um, it's not for the faint yeah. because it's, it's pretty busy, but... I mean, just the, we hired the best people, and it was um, it was really great. So it sounds like you're really building it from the ground up in terms of At CrowdStrike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what advice do you have for someone coming into a role like that? Is it is it look at your partner types and, and build around those? Yeah, I, I think it's um, number one is get alignment. So number mm-hmm. one, get alignment. So we talked a little bit about that. Yeah, like who are the partner, the focus partners. Um, then second, I do think that you need to be able to identify the different partner types. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've been in the tech industry, so the partner types, as an example, would be you have your cloud service provider, so like an AWS or a Google, and then we have your ISVs slash tech alliances. You have your GSIs, the global system integrators. You mm-hmm. have some of your resellers and solution providers. So there's different, and, and every industry might have a little bit different of those partner types. But um, you know, I say for every partner type, the three pillars: demand gen, brand awareness, and enablement. Mm-hmm. You sort of pull the different levers. So for for the tech alliances, you're going to have maybe more enablement, more demand gen, and a little bit more brand awareness, and different for the the resellers as well. So kind of that framework. So I think just getting your framework in place, getting alignment. um, And then I think the other thing too is part of the alignment is setting expectations because everyone who is not in partner marketing, they just hear partner as a partner as a partner and all partners are sort of lumped into whatever preconceived notion they have. So it could be that they're, they're, when they're talking partner, they're talking a reseller. Yep. And so they're like, why aren't everyone uh, deal regging everything? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, well, you know, uh, our tech alliances aren't going to really deal reg because they're not reselling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but expectations because everyone has c- certain expectations. So just make sure that everyone has the right expectation for the right partner type and where the revenue is going to come from and where the brand is going to come from and who we should be enabling. Interesting, interesting. I want to hit the pause button to ask if you received your latest customer engagement research from Foundry, home of global editorial brands like CIO.com. Did you know that 87% of tech decision makers say that it's challenging to find high quality content when looking to make a tech purchase? Customer engagement is actually one of my favorite tech reports as it dives into the content consumption habits of tech decision makers and 
It helps marketers understand the challenges and opportunities when marketing to tech buyers. The report goes into detail on how content's been consumed to help make purchase decisions and how those consumption habits change based on the buying persona and where people are in the purchase process. Learn how to drive greater results through your marketing activities through the insights of Foundry's Customer Engagement Study. Get your free copy of Foundry's Customer Engagement Study by heading over to foundryco.com slash on the road. That's foundryco, F-O-U-N-D-R-Y-C-O.com forward slash on the road. And don't forget, if you want to support the show, subscribe to our new YouTube channel or give us a rating, like, or even a comment on your favorite podcast platform. Cheers. So, you know, you're obviously out here for, for Octane. Yes. And I'd love to hear more about it. But first, why the switch? Why, why Octa? What really attracted you to Octa? Yeah, you know, I think um, Octa, as I'm, I'm jumping in now, full 30 days in, yeah. it's, been, it's been a, really, a whirlwind, and it's been really fantastic. Um, Octa has a renewed commitment out to our partner ecosystem. I think today uh, Okta has uh, just over 60% of the business coming from partners, hmm. whereas uh, CrowdStrike was at 100%. But I think that what is exciting for me is just the ability to be able to help that trajectory and growth. And there's a, such a renewed commitment and investment. There's so much investment going in Okta to be able to build out this partner ecosystem. So I was excited to be able to to jump over and be part of this and help building this new version 2.0 mm-hmm. with partners. So that was, it was super exciting and, and uh, we're, we're gonna be running fast and um, it's gonna be exciting. Sounds a little different than if, if you're coming in and it's version 2.0, not necessarily building from the ground up. So does that change your approach a little bit than it, what you did at CrowdStrike? It, it does, I think that there's, um, I, I don't think, you know, as one, one thing I've seen as I move from company to company is you can't take the blueprint from one company and just apply it to the next because it just doesn't work. There's culture, there's um, you know this, there's market conditions, and so what you have to do is just basically take as much experience as you can and lessons learned and use them as data points. Mm-hmm. That's the engineer in me, right? Yeah. Use them as the data points, but really then apply them toward sort of what you're trying to solve for. And you can say, well, this worked in the past because of this. So you can sort of build a plan that, but it's founded on some of those experiences. So that's kind of the what's what's happening now at, at Octa. It's fascinating you say that because I think that that's good advice for almost anything. I mean, I've seen it on the mm. sales side, right? We'll get sales leaders come in and yep. this, Just because this, this worked at our last company. Yeah. We're going to do it here, and it's it's like a totally different culture, different products, totally. customers, 100%. and it's like sometimes you're trying to push a you know a square peg through a round hole, right? And so I. I love that advice. I think it's it's easier said than done, though. <laughs> no, it is. It is, and I think I think half the battle is just getting getting internal buy-in. Yeah. Because I do think that that's key for forget about partner marketing, but you just have to identify your key stakeholders, make sure that they're on board with your plan, and and for partner marketing, it's really important to bring people along the journey. Because mm-hmm. I may have this great plan and. Like, of course, I have this experience, so I know we're, this is where we're going. Yeah. But if I'm out charging by myself and people are not bought in, 
then nothing's going to work. So you have to socialize it, make sure people are on board and going along a journey with you. Yeah, no, I get it. I mean, that's kind of what I did for this podcast, right? Um, a lot of support from our marketing team because, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm personally... you got to be best friends with the marketing yeah, team. Yeah, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm personally handling the, the recruitment and, you know, the interview prep and the interviews, but there's a lot of work between between the film crew yeah. and, and, you know, the creating of the pages and the, the show notes. And so the marketing team and the film crew, I mean, they're doing a lot. Yeah. But I made them part of the process, and they helped with, with naming the show and, you know, uh, uh, all lots of decisions. I let them be part of it. And, and they all want to jump in, and they all feel like they're, they're part of this now, and, and they are. You know? the, the key is making everyone think it's their idea. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Not that it's, it's a film crew's idea, but... No, and, but, you know, I, they've guided me a lot because I've never you're, done anything right. like this. And so they, they've kept me from falling off the cliff a couple of times and, you know, you know, walking into doors. And so, yeah. you know, and in return, I also get a lot of support, you know, a lot of help. So I, I totally agree because that's another just common theme, not again, not just partner marketing, but yeah. it's a common theme throughout my career where I think if you if you get people so they're, they're genuinely involved and believe in the mission, yeah. you will get their best work. Otherwise, people just sort of phone it in and they just, you know, they go through the motions and they clock out. But if, if you can get really people emotionally and and really uh, um, believe in their heart that they are making a difference and they believe on the mission, that's where the power is. And that's yeah. that's where you can kind of get the best work because then people have ideas and creating a safe space so that people can can kind of share their ideas yeah. too. Yeah, and I, I've seen it personally help with my career, you know, because on the sales side, you can have some really aggressive type A, you know, yeah. salespeople who will just do whatever they can to make right. the sales. And, you know, they'll be really good to their customers, but internally, yeah. they cannot be so good to their internal <laughs> customers, right? And, and I've always taken a different approach where, like, I'll treat my internal customers better than I'll treat the external mm. customers. Not that I treat them bad, but, yeah. like, these are people that I see every day. You know, I, I see them sometimes more often than my family, right? Yeah, and so, but in that process, I feel like I've gotten a lot of people in my corner that want to see me succeed. Yeah. Because I want to see them succeed, and it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a mutual benefit. It's really helped my career, and I wish, I wish salespeople would see more of that, you know, and I think it would benefit their career, too. Totally, yeah. totally. And I think you said something, too, where if people want to see you succeed, that's you know that's where you know you sort of made that connection and yeah. and one of the things I found is in order for you to succeed like you have to help others succeed as well yep so you can't yeah. like you know it's it's very short-sighted to say I'm gonna be able to have to step on other people to get up but yeah. if you help other people achieve their goals they're gonna in turn help you achieve yours yeah absolutely and that Kind of summarizes the partner marketing space. Yeah, there, right? right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so, so you're here for Octane. How's it going? You know, what what can you share about the Octa? You know, partner marketing ecosystem. I'd love to hear more about it. Yeah. So, I mean, Octa is is really really a unique in, in a unique spot because we're the the leading independent identity provider. And so, when I say independent, it's kind of like, for lack of better analogy, Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Right. So we do have. There's one major uh, competitor that uh, we shall name <laughs> nameless that's based up in Redmond, Redmond yeah. but you know who knows. Um, but aside from that, I think that there's uh, you know everyone else. We're basically partnering with everyone else with yeah. AWS, with Google, with uh, like ISVs, with resellers, and so because we're we're controlling that um, uh, the 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 ability for everyone to access any technology. 
freely. And so I think from an Okta perspective, usually there's a trade-off. Usually you can either improve a security posture, but that comes at the price of having a friction, you know, like a lot of friction in the experience. So right. you got to reset your password. Like, what's the CAPTCHA? Uh, what's, uh, you know, what's your, um, uh, what's your security challenge password? And just very, uh, very friction. Versus the other side is, oh, we want to have a frictionless experience, but maybe you don't have security. So right. kind of with Okta, you have both, and I think that's the value. And there's so much more that's being announced at Octane. There's pass keys. There's something really cool, which is everyone's heard of single sign-on, mm -hmm. but there's also um, universal sign-out. So if there's a threat detected, it'll just oh. like completely log it, log you out of all your sessions. Interesting. Which is super cool. So yeah. I think that you know there's a lot of things that are just being announced here at um, Octane. Our partners, there's um, I think there's like 50 sponsors um, with partners. And it's just really great to be able to get everybody together. There's developer sessions. So it's really well done. I, I, I'd like to take credit for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but being here 30 days, yeah. I don't know if I can. Yeah. yeah. That's great. So I'd love to ask about events in general. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is a big face-to-face -face event for you, for you all. Yep. You know, events kind of went to the wayside during the pandemic. Yeah. I feel like we're kind of getting back. Like, where do you view events next year? Big part of, of the partner efforts, is it, is it going to be still kind of less than when it was pre-pandemic? Yeah, you know, events, it's really interesting. So I reflect back on when everything went virtual at, at and I'll kind of talk about my days over at CrowdStrike too. So pre-pandemic, this was before my time, but CrowdStrike was all about events, yeah. very events heavy and, and doing, you know, doing everything from a face-to-face -face perspective. Then all of a sudden, the pandemic hit. And I think all, all the marketers, our plans just went out the window. Yeah. Like, you know, well, I had X amount of budget and there's no more. And especially if you were so events heavy. And so I, what I noticed was that some companies, CrowdStrike was one of them, but some companies were able to pivot very quickly into be able to kind of doing more digital yeah. and online. Certain companies didn't. And, you know, I think then all of a sudden then, and and that sort of determined your success during the pandemic. And then coming out of the pandemic, people are coming out of the pandemic at different stages. I know there's still some companies that are still sort of a little gun shy on events, um, but I think the majority of the world is now sort of back, back to normal. Mm -hmm. But the world has changed because even if you were so event heavy, now you realize in your portfolio of marketing, you have to have a balance of this online, this digital, you have to produce content now because everyone is expecting to consume content. So you have content, um, you have digital activities, and then you know there was a one-to-many webinars where, and I think some of the effectiveness rolled off. Yeah. And now it's more of the, the one-to-few, the interactive workshops, maybe with the techies. And so there's different activity, but you can still do that online. So it's finding the balance. So I, I still think that there's, depending on the industry, there's still a need to be able to have some um, in-person event that will mm -hmm. never go away, yeah. but you need to complement that. And you know, I would I would start as a guiding. I would start with maybe a 50-50 split, yeah. and then kind of dial it 60-40, 70-30 based on your industry. There. Yeah, it's it's funny. It goes back to kind of what you're saying earlier in terms of you had a blueprint for what worked. Yeah, right. right? That might not work next year. You got to totally. think about it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask you in terms of coming out of this year. Challenging year for a lot of people. Um, a lot of companies for were sure. actually 
very successful too in it. Like, what did you see really work, you know, in 2023 that you think will will continue in the next year? Or are there going to be challenges you think that were in 2023 that will continue in the next year? From a marketing perspective? Yeah, specific to partner marketing. Yeah, I I think that, um, I do think that we're in a, we're in a, a unique time because what happens is that historically, you know, partner marketing, we've, we've got our B2B hat on and we want to be able to articulate a value proposition and blah, blah, blah. But in the pandemic, our professional lives and our personal lives sort of blurred together. And with that, what happened was a lot of times people were um, expecting a consumer experience in their work. Yeah. And so that just means if I look at... Um, how people are consuming content, like on Netflix, you know, there's there's just this expectation. We're as consumers, we're consuming content online everywhere, and I think that the successful partner marketing and just marketing in general will be able to produce content that is compelling. It's entertaining, like this podcast, yeah. right? But um, it's basically you got to produce some content to be able to capture people's attention, and whether it's you know, whatever audience, whether on the consumer side or even on the business side. So you have to kind of produce something that people are willing to invest time in and doing. Do you think Gen AI can help partner marketers with that? Or do you think there's some hype with that? I'd love to get your thoughts on where you think this is going to help the partner yes. marketer in the future. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, so so Gen AI, Gen AI is a um, it's definitely a hot trend. No matter where you go, you're yeah. going to see it. Um, it's even, even in my kid's school. <laughs> How so? <laughs> They're writing essays or, oh, that's or right, not writing kids, essays. You have kids in high school and right, going to college, right? Right, right. It, my oh, God, kids, help yeah, you out. No, I got young kids. If, so I have to deal with that. people of my kids' school are watching this, they're not, they're not using it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I do think it's changing, it, it is changing the world. I think that um, there's just some really amazing innovations, and I think it's early innings with Gen AI. So I'm, I'm a big fan. I think that it's it will be game-changing, kind of the next kind of, I don't know if it's going to be as big as the internet, but it is going to be yeah. pretty big. Um, and I think it's going to just be ubiquitous across across everything that we do. It's just going to be um, doing things that humans can do, but faster. Yeah. And then, so will you be challenging your team to think about how they can incorporate it into their day-to-day practices? Or what does that look like from a practical standpoint from running a, a partner marketing team? Yeah. You, you know, I think that there's, um, there's obviously, I do, uh, separately, I know that there's a current one, this is one particular use case, but I know a lot of marketers are sort of using using this to generate some content yeah. and that there's some things that you can do. I think we have to be careful just from a security standpoint and compliance. Yeah. You know, you can't just kind of dump your IP into some of those public AI engines. Um, but I think there's an opportunity there just to be able to help make marketers' jobs easier. I know on the product side, there's a lot of innovations going on as well. Um, so to be honest, I haven't really thought about it, but I think it's one of those things that we, we need to be able to explore and get in front of. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We're, we're still trying to figure out internally, and you know, like a lot of companies, yeah. we, have, we have a task force, we have you know, kind of some contests for submissions. And personally, I've used it on the sales side just to, you know, we, we, we build cadences for customer outreach or prospect outreach. Yeah, just, totally. You know, we're not we're not having it create things for us, but you know, we're creating things and, and almost having someone else give us feedback on mm-hmm. the things we've created. Like, can you can you make this look better or sound better or what you know, compare it to best practices and so we're we're playing with it. We yeah. haven't really cracked it or figured it out, but you know 
You gotta, you gotta send me what you have. I'd be curious. Yeah, well, so I, I, I'm always willing to yeah. learn. So I, I, I don't claim to have all the best ideas. So these types of conversations are fantastic because I, I, I learn what other people are doing. So let me know. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting what they're doing on the editorial side, and um, you know, specific to our consumer brands like mm-hmm. PC World. Yeah, right. You know, they're writing a lot about you know a lot of laptop comparison content, but we've we've embedded some almost like chat bots on the site, but it's it's Gen AI specific. So helping consumers. You know, get information right on their site. Looking at you know laptops two side by side, they can start to ask questions and get you know generative AI responses hmm. back. So, not sure how that's going to work on the B two B editorial side, but you know Matt Egan, our, our head of editorials, you know looking into it and trying to figure that out. Hmm. So, do you have anything that's called Skynet? Yeah, I know. We're, we're getting <laughs> <Not> there. <yet. laughs> well, you know, let so, me know when when you do. Cause I'm gonna run for the hills. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in Colorado. I'm not far from the hills, so. Um, you know, as we look to wrap up, I got I have two more questions for you. But I, you know, one of them is I want to go back to the alignment with with the corporate marketing side and the sales side. Yeah. Because I know that is a top challenge that I hear time and time again. Any advice for partner marketers out there that are that are trying to align with with corporate marketing, field marketing, sales? Because I know it can be a speed bump, a hurdle. They don't always see the value in partner marketing. Like, what's your advice to those people? Yeah. You know, it's. Um Kind of going back, I think I can provide some guidance, but I think it's going to depend on everyone's situation because every company might be a little different. I do think that there's a couple of things that uh, I, th- I think what happens is there's a lot of friction. It's human nature to be able to fear what you don't understand. And so if you don't understand something, your natural default is to kind of go the other way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I think that there's a lot of field marketers who don't have a lot of Um, experience with partners and so providing a framework where they can sort of understand these are the partners is what we're going to do here's sort of the pillars here's the partner types so if you can lay out the pillars and just say this is how this is where we need to be able to engage Um, because I think a lot of times in the absence of that framework what happens is that um, people just say I I need you to run events and it's all of a sudden reactive the squeaky wheel the random act of marketing and people just throw up their arms yeah and if we can cut through the noise and just say here's the you know focus partners here's how we're gonna market with them these are the types of events that we're gonna do or activities I think then people are like oh okay I can do this I can do this so I think just that framework of of managing expectations internally is is key because then people will get bought in Mm -hmm. to the mission now, would you recommend that they're brought into developing the framework or providing feedback on the framework? Like, do you, do you let them to be part of that process, or are you just here's what we're doing? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's that's where you find the balance between kind of leveraging some of the experience to be able to provide that framework, because I, I you know having done it a few times, I kind of know okay, well this we tried we tried it and this one didn't work, so I'm going to lay out a framework, and I do think. You have to start with something on a page yeah. versus giving a blank sheet of paper. Yep. Like the blank sheet of paper, you know, is not going to end well, yeah. right? Um, because you're going to end up doing something crazy. But if you end up with something like, okay, here's three things on the page. Pick which one you want, I think, is more of the, the approach. Some sort of direction. Yeah. yeah. So here's kind of the framework. This is what we're doing. You have an opportunity to change these pieces here, but not the overall structure. Makes sense. Like, you can pick what tires yeah. you want. You can pick what kind of what color paint of the car you want. Yeah. But you're not going to, you know, go off and, and build the engine. I love it. I love it. Well, I think that's great advice. And I'm going to ask you for one more piece of advice. Okay. I ask everybody to leave one piece of advice on the road 
for our listeners. So, you know, look at the partner marketers out there. What's what's your main takeaway advice? And that could be career, program, strategy. I'll leave it up to you. Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> well, um, yeah, you, you know, um, this one I, I I haven't thought about, but I'm just going to put out something. That Let's go. <laughs> I think that um, uh, one. Only one, right? We're saying only one. I think there's there's no time limit here. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have to, um, you know, in order to be successful, you have to make sure that others are successful too. We talked about that yeah. too, and it's really about collaborating. If you're in a partner marketing role, you have to realize that your stakeholders are across the organization, and you need to be able to collaborate. You need to be able to push your agenda forward while making sure that others are also achieving their agenda. And so I think that collaboration, that relationship is really key. And I think that some of it's personality, but some of it's really your approach. Um, Err on the side of over-communicating because don't assume people can read your mind. You may be working on a project, um, but there's just, you know, you need to be able to make sure that you bring people along for the journey. So I don't know if that's like, one piece of advice, but um, no, I think that's great because I think that's 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 applicable to any role, right? Not just part of marketing, right? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about you know people I've worked with and just seeing seeing them work in a silo and not trying to bring up the people alongside them. Totally, and, and I know it would benefit them. It would come back to them tenfold if they did that. Mm-hmm. Going back yeah. to the bartending days. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Carlos, thank you so much for for joining. This yeah, was a lot no, of fun. Glad and, to uh, be here. Yeah. Well, good luck with Octane. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by IDG Communications Incorporated, doing business as Foundry. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of Foundry or the participants' companies.